I'm just imagining being in the audience of that and who is this spluttering Australian that's is coughing all over our important points and not really paying attention to anything right now because he's dosed up on uh, anti-COVID. Well, of course, after that party conference, we all feel, if not physically sick, certainly um, intellectually sick from the low quality of Tory party policy settings. And on that unbelievable segue, let's, uh, let's get into the podcast. Welcome to the Pin Factory, the Anderson Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Lash, I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-host and head of programs, Daniel Pryor, and Andy Mayer, the Chief Operating Officer at the Institute of Economic Affairs, the IEA. In this week's episode, we're going to be discussing Conservative Party Conference, Migration and Wages, and the Future of Energy Policy. The ASI and IEA have joined business groups in widely publicised criticism of Prime Minister Boris Johnson's Conservative Party Conference speech. On Thursday, the Guardian front page led with ASI analysis, uh, as of course it always does, uh, that the speech was (laughs) bombastic, vacuous, and in the wonderful immortal words of Matthew Lesh, economically illiterate. Uh, Matthew, starting with you, you've also just arrived back from Manchester. Uh, How do you rate the mood of party conference this year? Yeah, I mean, the great thing about reading the mood of a party conference is it's really just whatever you want the mood to be, whatever Mm. your vibes are, um, as as I quite enjoy every journalist giving their own impression of it. I mean, I'm I'm probably going to be slightly biased when I say this, but I, I think there was genuinely a lot of disquiet amongst Tory members um, uh, about the direction of the party. There's a lot of excitement about people seeing each other again. There's always a lot of excitement around um, seeing someone like Boris Johnson. There's a bit of a kind of celebrity element to it. You know, one moment you've got Jake Rees-Mogg walking past you, the next moment it's Liz Truss and people love their selfies and dancing at 2am in uh, certain nightclubs with, with the, the foreign secretaries is always a lot of fun. But at, at the same time, it, it just doesn't seem like the party necessarily stands for very much. And you certainly got that sense that if you ask Tories why they're there, they talk about freedom, they talk about low taxes, uh, but you don't seem to be actually hearing that from the people in charge. There's always that sense with Boris. He says, well, you know, I really want low taxes. Uh, well, only Boris, if only you were in the position to actually do something about that. If only, if only you had the power to, to perhaps set the country's tax policy to some extent, perhaps it, it could be a bit better. Um, the other one as well that's quite striking is just, just a lot smaller. Um, the, all all the, the, the speeches, with the exception of the Prime Minister's, were in a much smaller space. It seemed like a lot fewer people around than previously. Um, just kind of a lot less excitement than a few years ago in 2019 when the when the party really had a purpose, when it, when it needed to exist to defeat Jeremy Corbyn to get Brexit done. Um, that With that all gone, it's, it's what is the point of the Tories other than governing for the sake of governing. And uh, Andy, I'm definitely asking you this for the first and not the third time because we don't have technical issues on the wonderful <laughs> factory podcast, but uh, you unfortunately missed out on the opportunity to go clubbing with ministers at 2am in Manchester, having to watch along at home and hear about the mood of the conference from colleagues at the IEA. What did you make of it? Uh, And do you think that uh, Matthew's views of it being a slightly muted mood there ring true? Well, with regret, I'm probably old enough to have been clubbing with the ministers when they were still students. And the appeal of going out clubbing late at night uh, in Manchester uh, these days is quite unattractive relative to a nice cup of cocoa and reading the headlines along with the rest of the public. 
uh, about how the conference is coming across. And there, Matthew's completely right. I mean, the economics in the conference were eccentric at best, and the Prime Minister, I think, did himself a great disservice by trivialising uh, everything in what is really a national crisis uh, where people are looking for serious leadership. I remember speaking to one attendee, I think it was the second day of conference, and they were complaining that it seemed like almost every session was either on net zero by 2050 or <laughs> the meaning of levelling up. Given that apparently every session was devoted to the term, do we now know what levelling up means, Andy? Do we have any more concrete idea of that sort of concept that seems to be at the heart of the government's thinking and messaging? Oh, you've asked the hard questions, don't you? I mean, no, no one has any idea what levelling up means, least of all the department that's just been renamed as the levelling up department. It's a nebulous concept that really a reaction to an old stereotype of socialism, that socialism means levelling down. And in substance, what people hear when people say levelling up is whatever they want to hear. So if you're vaguely socially democratic, you hear that the government is going to be intervening in markets but not taking them over. You hear that taxes are going to rise in the south to pay for a few things in the north. And there's this ongoing assumption that what uh, northern conservative voters really want is this sort of soggy new Labour um, consensus uh, that actually there's very little evidence that they do. The polling suggests that the conservatives of the north are very much like the Conservatives in the South and want the Prime Minister to be a little bit more like them. And Matthew, obviously a, a huge fan of levelling up on the podcast consistently, expressing <laughs> your support for the concept. Are you now fully satisfied that you know exactly what it means and that it's a very good thing too? For, for our regular listeners, including one who came up to me at party conference to ask for a selfie and declared himself a fan of the Pimp Factory, which really happened, and I, I promise listeners that that did happen because uh, I have a witness to the occasion. Um, in, uh, they will know that I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of this levelling up concept. I, I went along to listen to Gove's uh, speech where he defined uh, leveling up, or I should say, tried to define leveling up and use it, it was something in four points. I mean, it was all uh, very worthy goals and, and very worthy motherhood statements, um, things like increasing local control and boosting living standards. That's something everyone wants to see all the time, all over the place. What seems to be lacking is, is any kind of detail with respect to that agenda. And the other part of Gove's policy responsibilities, um, leveling up housing and communities. When it comes to housing, it seemed quite the opposite intention from the government to, to kind of step back both in, in um, I think we got this three times across the conference. We got it from uh, the, the Tory chairman, Oliver Dowd, and we got it from Gove himself, and then we got it from Boris in his main speech, that basically their ambitions when it comes to housing are no longer to build houses where they're most needed. That's in, in London and the Southeast. Instead, they just want to build housing on brownfield lands because that's popular. Of course, we know that's popular, but it's insufficient to, to solve the housing crisis. So it's, it, it seems like when it comes to actual meaningful policy that potentially could be linked to levelling up, like building more homes and, and boosting living standards across the country we're, we're very much lacking. And Andy, you mentioned the kind of raising taxes in the South to um, pay for services in the North. We saw uh, the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, being interviewed by the IEA's very own Mark Littlewood and Taxpayers Alliance's John O'Connell as well. Do you think, and I'm not sure if you followed along those remarks, I remember sitting in my hotel room and, and watching them on YouTube. Um, do you think that the Conservatives can still really be considered as the party of 
low taxes. Do you buy Rishi's argument that he made during that interview, actually, that he is really a, a fiscal conservative in Thatcher's legacy? You know, yeah, make me pure, just not yet. I mean, clearly, no, the party is no longer the party of low taxes. They seem extraordinarily comfortable with putting up taxes uh, rather than trying to deal with the underlying problems that are being created by the pandemic. I mean, our mutual friend Darren Grimes went around uh, Manchester conference asking people, does Boris Johnson stand for anything other than low tax, sorry, sorry, higher taxes and wind farms and getting a lot of blank responses. Uh, and I think that really says it all. I mean, the current status of the Conservative Party on economics is no different to where Labour were not actually under Tony Blair, but under Ed Miliband. I mean, this is Ed Miliband's agenda that Boris Johnson is executing. This is uh, going back to pre-distribution, but with a snappier word for it, with levelling up. Yeah, it, it does seem to me, and we had, uh, again, the IEA Steve Davis on a, a few episodes ago, that you've kind of got two real ways of thinking about the Tories right now. Either they're very much the election-winning machine and just that, it, it's purely a kind of focus on electoral gain, or at least that's what they attempt to focus on. Or they are kind of, and I, and I think there's some, some merit to this uh, example of this realignment where they are moving away from you know, free market economics, uh, or at least you know, attempts towards that as one of their defining uh, things about them, and towards instead this kind of culture war populism being the, the primary motivator. I mean, the biggest cheer of the conference, and, and I have to say I count myself uh, amongst those cheerers, was for some of the comments Boris made about insulate Britain, but it does seem like the, the centre-right economics is taking very much a back seat now. Um, and actually we're leading with what is ultimately, you know, statements about value in, in the more cultural sphere. Matthew, you, uh, I know, also watched along the interview with the Chancellor. What were your main takeaways from that, the Tories' economic approach going forward? Mm. My first takeaway is just the fascinating fact that uh, the, the one event Rishi chose to do as a fringe event, a public facing mm. fringe event, was the IEA and CPA, which says to me that he's effectively aware of his weakness, which he, uh, as a politician, as someone who one might say has aspirations for, for moving next door from number 11 to number 10, that he needs to placate a certain element of the party. And what I quite like about Rishi is Rishi's smart in a way um, you, you don't see Boris talking about policy detail. Um, you don't see Boris him talking about, you know, the, the nature of the economy and the challenges we face. Rishi comes across as intelligent and capable and, and, you know, someone who you want in charge. I just don't think the lack of things that he's doing. Um, and, and I also am quite sceptical about his his central claims um, with, res with respect to uh, taxes and, and the, the nature of um, the, the, the government. I mean, he's, he's effectively playing the politician. He plays that very well, but doesn't seem to be particularly um, principled in what he's doing. I, I don't buy his argument whatsoever that, in fact, raising taxes is, is fiscal conservatism. We actually know from uh, quite a number of studies that raising taxes will not actually get down your debt because it will make the economy small. The only way to get down your debt is actually to cut spending um, and, and cut ongoing government commitments. But there doesn't seem to be a willingness amongst this government to do that. And therefore, um, we're stuck in a situation where debt will probably just keep it increasing um, because the government has so many commitments, they've got so much spending, um, and increasing taxes is just going to make the overall pie smaller. So I don't particularly buy by his 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 rationale or the in reaching the outcomes that he's, he's claiming to reach. 
Yeah, I think just to add to that before we move on to the next section, it's worth remembering that now is not the same as 2010 in terms of the public debt situation. Our borrowing costs are at record lows. And it seems like we, we had this um, in last year that the thing that keeps Rishi up at night is the possibility of interest rates going up, which of course, you know, it, it could well happen. And there's certainly some inflationary pressures to worry about around then. But it seems like he, he's really, I think, overly focusing on public debt at a time where the main issue for, I think, most economists here is making sure we don't jeopardize what is quite a fragile recovery in the post-COVID economy. And it seems like, you know, in, in many other um, spheres of policy, the government is jeopardizing that fragile recovery. Uh, and certainly through tax hikes, that's not going to help as well. Now, the, the bit that, that kind of interested me was when he was talking about, okay, assuming that we need to raise uh, a vast sum of money in order to, to kind of pay off some COVID public spending now, then he had the choice of uh, raising national insurance contributions or VAT or income tax. Uh, and it is kind of, you know, for, for my money, as, as someone who doesn't think VAT is the, the worst thing in the world, it was interesting how he immediately dismissed that because, well, you know, we, we've got fairly high VAT rates and actually VAT is, is not very popular. So, uh, so I won't go with that. But I think probably time to move on to our next section, also focused on um, the conservative economic approach. And that's on one of the arguments Boris made during his speech about migration and the apparent shift towards a high-wage economy. Conservative ministers, including the Prime Minister, argued this week that supply-side shortages are part of the UK economy's transition to a high-income, high-growth economy as part of the end of EU-related mass migration. Daniel, you're our migration expert. Question, will restricting migration lead to wage growth and productivity increases? No. Next question. No, I'm only joking. <laughs> I'll, I'll go into it. Um, basically, I, I don't think you can shrink your way to prosperity. You can't shrink the labor supply um, and result in long run prosperity. And I mean, the key thing, the kind of key economic insight here is if you look at the overall wage impact of, say, EU free movement, which seems to be what um, Boris was getting at. There's no real evidence that it had a significant impact on wages either way, actually. Sometimes you get some claims from the pro-migration side of the debate that um, free movement had significant positive impact on wages. It seems to have a, a marginal positive impact at the average um, or the medium to, to high income spectrum. Um, and at the lower end of the income spectrum for native, it some, seems to have some small negative impact. The best estimates are around a penny an hour in some of the worst case scenarios. So it's not nothing, but it's also not the kind of apocalyptic scenario that has been spelled out. But more than that, the, the kind of story that Boris is telling here is that, okay, I'm a business um, and I rely on cheap migrant labor, but now that that's gone, I'm going to suddenly start investing and boosting my productivity massively um, because there's a, a shortage in labor. And that might happen in some specific sectors. Uh, it will take a few years, um, so it, it's not something that can be done immediately. But for many sectors, it's actually very hard to, to do that, especially ones that rely or have relied on migrant labor in the past. If you think about um, agricultural uh, work, for example, you think about hospitality and accommodation, it's not very easy to find ways of, of significantly boosting productivity uh, in, say, 
hotel accommodation work, for example. So what seems to be the most likely scenario, at least in my head, is that most businesses are just going to pass the higher wage costs on in terms of higher prices. So mm. basically, this is the story that's been told time and time again in a lot of the commentary around the speech, and I think it's fundamentally true. It's going to increase inflationary pressures. And you might get some sectors that will get um, what it's like to be a temporary wage boost, but at the expense uh, of the price level going up for absolutely everyone. And actually that inflation absorbing much of the, the kind of wage gain. So no one is in real terms any better off. And for me, that that's not a kind of successful or sustainable economic model. If you don't boost productivity whilst you're, you're boosting wages, then you're just going to end up with inflation and all of the economic disruption that comes with inflation. Mm. I mean, I think it's quite interesting. The, the simplest way to say this in my mind is just the fact that there are countries in the EU that are more productive than the UK, um, including Germany and France. So if the issue was the fact that you have open borders in the EU, if that was driving down productivity, driving down wages, you would actually see um, lower productivity in those countries as well, which, which is quite frankly, you don't. In fact, traditionally, we, we see opening up to Europe as a way to drive productivity because not only can you get skills gaps, but also competition drives productivity improvements and being in an open market and um, being free trading with the EU was meant to actually increase productivity. And I'm, I'm keen for your thoughts on this. What do we think of this, I suppose, maybe as a political strategy? Um, in my mind, there's a big risk of, of backlash here. The government's taking credit for shortages and, and um, issues in the economy, and therefore they're effectively also taking credit for the upcoming inflation if that does eventuate. Well, in a nutshell, you can either be global Britain or you can be little Britain, pick one. You can't be both. And what we're seeing here <laughs> yeah. is a central plan for people. So quite clearly, the Brexiteers that the free marketeers tend to like, which are the globalists, have lost. We're now getting into a situation where rather than replacing free movement of people with a more rational and fair visa-based system that treats everybody from all over the world um, on the basis of merit, we're getting one where politicians are desperate to try and avoid headlines. So we can't possibly have a headline that we're letting people in who are perhaps in lower skilled or lower wage jobs, lest somebody complain to the Daily Mail. And that's no way to run an economy. I mean, the HGV situation where we have a shortage of up to 100,000 HGV drivers, is something that was flagged first in 2017, 2018. This could have been sold years ago. And to react to the current crisis where Admittedly, it's not a fuel crisis, it's a panic crisis, but one that's based in a rational belief that the government doesn't know what the hell they're doing, uh, with a three-month temporary visa scheme in the hope that somehow this is going to persuade somebody to make the extraordinary journey across the world to come and drive a truck in Britain, where the thing the truckers are moaning about most is the poor facilities for truckers. It's nuts. It's not going to do a damn thing. So what we need is the government to stop this silliness and to actually say, yes, we do not have a central plan for people. We would like to fill jobs as they arise. We do not fundamentally mind whether you are based in the EU or India or America or Australia. We want you to come here and do great work for Britain and deliver for the economy. That's surely the approach they need to take. Well, I'm not so sure about Australia included. Maybe, <laughs> I, uh... perso personally, I've heard a lot of complaints about Australians coming to this country and, and taking jobs that should be reserved for 
uh, locals and uh, but unfortunately um, other things have happened I, us, I, I us think poor podcast hosts are going to get our wages <laughs> doubled I'm sure <laughs> once, once you kick me out of the country in, in no time at all it actually just kind of make me think about just a central fact that for me at least as someone who was Brexiteer but on the more global Britain side um, my thought was well if you can control immigration you can actually be more as generous as you like and that's certainly I'm talking of Australia Australia's traditional approach was actually we can have this points-based migration system tick that's what vote leave called for but what wasn't I suppose properly explained was the fact that Australia per capita probably takes about twice as many people um, in in migration terms compared to the UK now Australia has a much stronger history of, of migration and, and integration you could you could argue having done that across generations but at the same time the whole point of a points-based system of taking back control was that you could fill skills gaps and it seems bizarre to me that that's not the government's argument that you have Priti Patel who despite coming obviously from an immigrant background herself just seems to have this instinctive hatred of immigrant numbers just seems to be very focused on numbers and and we can't let too many in even when there are other economic costs and I think the best you can say is well that's what people voted for but I don't think it was necessarily what people voted for in fact um Daniel as I'm sure you you can you can outline support for immigration has gone up in recent history hasn't it yeah, I was, I was going to come in with precisely that point, actually. I think that the government, even on political terms, are misjudging things quite a lot when it comes to migration. You're right that if, if you look at a lot of the polling behind the Brexit vote, now immigration as a concern was certainly very high up there, but sovereignty was above immigration. And I think for a lot of people, it's not so much about, well, we just want to pull up the drawbridge. It is that kind of you know control that you mentioned. And actually, I think you know, you look at the kind of overall levels of support or whether you think immigration has been good for society or not, that trend has been consistently going towards the pro-immigration side for the past decade. And the Brexit vote didn't really seem to budge that trend very much. It didn't really seem to, to shift it. Uh, if anything, it, it could have slightly increased it. Obviously, it's hard to, to kind of tell which way. But for me, that kind of indicates that at least for a lot of people, the concern isn't about the numbers. It's about being able to maintain control of borders. And just, just about it, it's also fundamentally about the government not wishing to understand what a cost of living crisis is actually based on. Because inflation seems to have been uninvented, as you pointed out earlier in this crisis. There's just no yeah. sense that if you push up wages, somebody's going to have to pay the bills. And those bills will be paid by the people whose wages have gone up. And in fact, they will be no better off than they were before. In fact, they'll be worse off because no productivity improvement has taken place. And I appreciate the argument that's being made that we could be more like France, where they have decided as a matter of national policy for many years to accept high levels of youth unemployment in order to have a system where they invest heavily in capital and have fewer people running the same sorts of things that we do. Well, if that's the economy we want, then we are prepared to accept the same things that go along with that. And that doesn't mean just people putting up their price. It means businesses going out of business because they can't do that. They can't compete. So these numbers are not being talked about. It's just this sort of very, very weak, incoherent argument that you can somehow put up wages and you're all better off. Hooray, job done. I mean, it's just not in any sense credible. Yeah, I mean, the other the other matter as well, of course, uh, France has accepted is an extremely highly regulated um, labour market that makes it 
particularly hard to employ people um, and expensive to do so. So, of course, you can have fewer people employed and combine with that a, a very expansive welfare state. Um, you combine those two things together and, and perhaps that explains a lot of, of why France has a particularly high youth unemployment. It's, it's why London is the ninth largest French city in the world, because those young people with talent who cannot get the job they want in France come here. Yeah, of course. And and last thing we should do is wanting to push those young people with talent away, or at least I guess I would say that. But um, I'm kind of just, 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 just finally before moving on this, this idea of the productivity puzzle, because really what the, what the government's central claim here is the productivity puzzle is caused by migration. We reject that central claim, but it does seem true that there has been a reduction in productivity since 2008. Um, I remember uh, in when Mark Little was speaking to Rich Sunak um, at a conference, they had a bit of a, a back and forth about it. Um, Mark said that the causation is, is too much regulation and, and too high taxes, uh, of course, and that's right, I fully agree with. Um, although at the same time, it doesn't necessarily fully explain what happened in 2008 and, and why productivity has been lower since then or why it was high beforehand. What do we need to do to, to, to boost productivity um, and, and ensure higher living standards? Daniel? Yeah, I guess, you know, the, the cause of the productivity puzzle is whatever uh, you want to be changed to some extent. So it, it's difficult to kind of pin down one factor. I think Mark was certainly right in uh, interviewing the Chancellor to point out uh, the sheer masses of, of regulation that have piled up since 2008. But of course, we were having regulation pile up before 2008 as well. It's just got worse. And I think the same is true when it comes to probably my key thing in the productivity puzzle, which is the housing crisis. Um, we did have a housing crisis before 2008. It's just that it's got even worse. So I don't think you can kind of point to, to one factor, although housing as ever on this podcast and anything to do with the uh, Adam Smith Institute and indeed the IEA is, is key here, letting people move to the places that they want to, where they can be more productive and have access to the sort of jobs that, um, that they're best able to. To do and i mean ultimately you know productivity is about doing more with less um and if people don't have the freedom or at least the means to move to those places where they can do that and where they can be most effective you're going to get serious problems so planning reform as ever the solution to all of our problems <laughs> and andy is it planning reform or what is it it's what is it takes the productivity marks right as well about regulation but Fundamentally, productivity is about inventing new stuff or delivering the stuff you already have better, faster, and cheaper. It's about turning goods into services. So one of Mark's favorite analogies is the iPhone, which has essentially turned a bunch of things that we used to have in our lives in the 1980s and 90s, like clock radios, uh, Walkman, uh, and other things into a bunch of apps on a single device. And that's clearly a productivity improvement, and that's made all of our lives better and richer. Now, none of the things that we're talking about there make an impact on that. What certainly makes an impact on it is if you start making life very uncomfortable indeed for manufacturing. So although the UK is never going to go back to a situation where it's highly, uh, sorry, leading the world in terms of things that are basic, things that other countries can do better than we do now, that it certainly has a role in producing high value manufacturing. So the molecules that you need to uh, resolve complex diseases or solve low carbon challenges, for example, those are all things that the UK could have comparative advantage in. And there's nothing really in that for, for the government to talk about. It doesn't like it because it's not as simple as saying that you can just solve all problems by putting up wages. I like the ring of basic Britain to it as a alternative. <laughs> it's got a good, good ring. Well, well, on that note, talking of uh, basic Britain and, and basic challenges, time to think about energy. 
Not your best segue, Matthew. I must. <laughs> no, no. It, it's always a work in progress. These segues. Uh, the, the interconnector hangover. fell down, didn't it, Matthew? <laughs> uh... Gas prices have reached record highs this week, as the energy regulator Ofgem has warned that significant price rises are on the way. Uh, I've just been emailed by my own energy company to remind me that they're on the way for me specifically. So. Happy days. Uh, Andy, what would you say are the, the key drivers behind the, this rising gas price phenomenon? And is the price of gas, as I very much hope, likely to come down or is this a more permanent adjustment? So there's a short and simple answer, which is the pandemic return and not planning for it. So demand is shooting up and we're heading into winter. So the supply of gas needed uh, needs to rock it up and clearly the companies that deliver those services are not ready and that's what's causing the price spike. Um, the longer answer, oh my goodness, uh, this is a 20-year crisis that uh, the government should have seen coming and in fact people like Dieter Helm were talking about uh, in their cost of energy review back in 2017, uh, the need to fundamentally reform the UK's awful, awful energy policy environment such that it was ready to deal with problems like this and the governments since 2017 clearly have been focused on dealing with Brexit and then the pandemic, so that hasn't happened. But in, in brief, I mean, we can get gas domestically, we get it from the North Sea. Uh, we could get it from onshore, there are some conventional onshore sites, but they're tiny. Um, but the big story, if we go back five years, was fracking. And that was put into a moratorium in 2019. So all of the potential gas that we have under our feet that we could have been extracting right now, we are not, and we will not be able to extract it for another year, even if we lifted the moratorium now. So it's not a temp it's not a solution to this year's problem, but it's a longer term solution, the one the government should be seriously considering and would be considering were it not for COP26 and the need for Boris to stand astride the world stage, waving a giant union jack saying, look how amazingly green we are and what a wonderful job we're doing. Uh, to the unfortunate backdrop of a fuel crisis and a gas crisis and energy companies going bust and people getting very cross with Boris. So he's not done what he needed to do early enough and he's got the situation he's got now. Um, we can try and solve it through uh, the interconnectors, but everybody's trying to solve it through the interconnectors in Europe at the moment and Norway is having a lovely time distributing gas around, as are the Russians, although they're not distributing gas quite as much as they would because the Germans are playing hardball over Nord Stream 2, which is the Russian solution to the problem of putting gas through a pipeline through the Ukraine. And so it goes on. So there's a few games going on all over the place, none of which the Brits have much influence over, other than the fact we have these vast domestic sources in the North Sea and onshore that we're not exploiting properly, in one case because of the moratorium, and in the other case because the North Sea fiscal regime is an utter complex mess that no government has taken seriously and has meant that investment has collapsed in the North Sea. And if we take those two things in turn, say we sort out the situation in the North Sea and fracking makes a, a triumphant, if undoubtedly unexpected, return, should we still be starting to, at least to consider the possibility of higher energy prices becoming more of a new normal in this uh, transition towards a low carbon economy and the world of flag waving at COP26? Is there a way that we can maybe mitigate the impact on household budgets? Does the transition to low or net zero carbon have to result in the sort of situation that it looks like we're going to be seeing uh, in the coming months? Yeah, so, so you've certainly got the, the magic money tree approach, which is that you can transfer all of the, uh, the low carbon and social charges on energy bills 
from those bills to general taxation. But that doesn't solve the problem. I mean, fundamentally, the, the low carbon transition story that we used to have was that we recognised it was a serious mission. It was a mission that involved a complex and slow transition using fossil fuels to get to a, a renewables and nuclear future. Uh, that's been replaced by an almost evangelical focus on delivering net zero, um, in which all of the seriousness and the need to retain gas has gone out of the window. And the consequence of that is that there is no strong investment message for the people who need to be investing in either delivering new sources of gas or gas generation. I mean, you would be absolutely crazy now to invest in a new gas generator because you've just been told by the Prime Minister that it's no longer needed by 2035. So that's gone. And his alternative that you have gas generation backed up by carbon capture and storage is utterly unserious. Carbon capture and storage has never been a solution to the UK's problems because we're just too expensive for it. Deliver carbon capture and storage, you need vast uh, manufacturing hubs of the type that we've been offshoring for years. And then you use the residential and other business needs off the back of that. Well, there's only four locations in the UK that are even seriously looking at this. And all of those, while they do have manufacturing, are not at the same sort of scale as places like China, which are really the countries that should be prototyping this stuff. Yeah, look, it's hard not to look at this whole situation and, and want to pull your hair out. Um, as someone whose uh, actually energy supply went bust, it turns out, because uh, we just recently swapped to, to get a lower energy price, it turns out um, doing what the government actually encouraged everyone to do, which was swap to the lowest co um, cost provider, did, doesn't necessarily work out when there are no low cost, lower cost supplies left because the, the, the wholesale costs have gone up. It seems like fundamentally... Um, when it comes to a lot of these climate policy issues, we are being sold a lie. Like it is going to be expensive, um, whether you like it or not, to transition uh, an energy grid to a different format. And, and the, the, the core issue here in the sense, which is uh, we've invested hugely in, in solar and gas, we've, we've pushed the market in that direction and a marginal cost, the marginal cost of solar and gas is quite low, but the grid costs are extremely high because you, you need um, backup energy, you need to have the redundancy for when the wind doesn't blow and, and the, the sun isn't shining. Uh, batteries aren't there yet to provide that. Um, some, of, some of our friends are very um, optimistic about batteries. That might solve our problem if it's just the cost of batteries and efficiency goes up substantially. I don't think it necessarily uh, is. Matt, Matt Ridley has a lovely line, which is it's trillion pounds to uh, last a week on batteries at the moment. That's the state of the yeah. technology. It's crazy. We did calculate something like you need 1.2, 1.3 trillion just to, in, in basically the entire world's battery production in order to run your, your grid off batteries. So this doesn't make sense. Then the other remaining solution is nuclear. And, and, and I'm a huge fan of nuclear. Um, I, I think it's quite clearly the only way to provide um, zero carbon energy at scale and sustainably um, and ensure that security of the grid. But the problem is it's really expensive. It's, it's just really expensive to construct new nuclear reactors. That's one problem. The other problem is it's baseload. So yes. nuclear isn't a solution you can't to turn it on and off. Yeah. renewables. Yeah, I mean, ideally, you just get rid of all the renewables and just, just build nuclear, and then, then you wouldn't have to worry about intermittency. You can't. You can't but, I mean, it's, it's really well, quite an important point. You've, the, the, you've got to, the, the, the electricity needs of the United Kingdom at the moment, this is before electric transport has taken off, ranges between 20 gigawatts to 60 gigawatts uh, every year. I've probably got the, uh, the metric wrong there, which is very embarrassing. But anyway, um, it's roughly that scale of variance. And you can cover the bottom of that with the base load. Um, but the top of it has to be covered by a dispatchable power. Dispatchable power at the moment is renewables, but they're not reliable. So the intermittency problem for offshore wind is about 25 to 50%. And gas, which is reliable and can provide both base load and dispatchable, but nobody likes it, nobody wants to invest in it. 
So if that problem can't be solved, we're in a lot of trouble. And that's why everybody's starting to get worried of national grid in particular about uh, blackouts. Just coming back to the, the question of energy costs, have we not already just completely solved this? We've stopped firms from charging too much for their energy via a wonderful energy <laughs> price cap. Uh, is that a good way of cushioning the blow to consumers? It turns out not, because as Ofcham has said today, we can expect significant increases in the energy price cap which means effectively that price cap, which the immediate result of the energy price cap actually was that a lot of companies increased their prices to the cap, is that it was it was more difficult to find cheaper deals. And, and everyone um, ended up just going, okay, well, that's what we're going to charge then if that's what the, the, the price has to be. Um, and then in the longer run, we're seeing the fact that, well, if, you, if they don't increase the energy price cap, then uh, more energy companies will go bust because they, they can't afford to provide the energy at the current prices which consumers are paying. So it doesn't seem like it's, it's ended up really achieving its goals whatsoever it turns out price controls still don't work um, there's there's real costs in the economy of, to provide goods and services and, and price caps won't change that fact and the current estimate is about a billion pound cost to the taxpayer of the company's going bust but we do need to be quite clear that these retail energy companies that are going bust are really just the icing on the cake um, they have no bearing on the generation capacity behind it, let alone the national grid, which is distributing and transmitting the energy around. So, I mean, although it's the focus of the headlines at the moment, it's really quite a trivial issue. Uh, the main issue underlying it is whether or not companies need better capital adequacy when they take on these contracts. And we've already uh, covered nuclear to an extent, something I was going to ask about, but something just popped up of interest to me, Andy, is we, we talked a lot about the kind of fact that gas has been so neglected in the UK's energy strategy. Why is that? What, what are the kind of political reasons why Voltage have just refused to, to really focus on gas and, and fracking and, and domestic production capacity? Well, fracking brings us back to your old friend uh, planning and yeah. housing and why we can't seem to build anything anywhere in this country. And in fracking's case, the regulatory standards that were set were so extreme that it effectively was a ban by other means. So if memory serves, the seismic activity that would be acceptable for a fracking site to operate without being shut down for environmental testing was something equivalent to a ladder falling over which is much more sensitive than, for example, lorries rumbling past your house to take your Amazon packages to their destination. So it was never serious. It was uh, a hugely successful campaign by environmental activists and, and to be fair, well-meaning politicians in the coalition trying to do the right thing and come up with a world-beating regulatory environment that would allow this activity to take place safely in their minds, while not really understanding that what they were in fact doing was banning it. So that's why that element hasn't worked. And otherwise, it simply does come down to this change of tone from serious focus on the low carbon transition, serious focus on security of supply, serious focus on affordability to a monomaniacal obsession with we are going to deliver net zero by 2050, or even sooner if we can, because that would be fantastic, but which it would, <laughs> but it's just not realistic. You've got to find a way of getting there. And one that involves real investors, entrepreneurs and other actors are prepared to invest in that transition having some return on their investment and that can't be on the basis that we have a never-ending diatribe of negativity about fossil fuels. Well on that extremely sensible uh, well-evident summary of how we can successfully transition to a low carbon economy without shooting ourselves in the foot too much I think it's probably time to bring this episode to a close so 
I just want to say thank you very much for my wonderful co-host, Matthew Lesh, uh, the ASI's Head of Research, as well as our special guest for this episode, Andy Mayer, the Chief Operating Officer at the Institute of Economic Affairs. If you like what you've heard on this Pin Factory podcast, then please do like, comment, and subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider. And until then, we'll see you next week for more banter analysis. Thanks very much. Mm-hmm.